190 freaking episodes of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. With me, my co-host, it's the newly single and ready to mingle, Barry Rose. Barry, how you doing, my man? I'm living the dream right now, Jeff. It is about 85 degrees, pure sun here. Life is good. I am mingling. I, I feel good. How are things down in Georgia? Are you guys? I've got a really tape? good story for you. Uh, it's a little bit long, so let me start. So the other <laughs> day, that, that happened before we started inside recording. Inside joke. So yeah. uh, today on the show, yes, very inside joke. We are going to be uh, discussing a few things. First of all, Barry, I'm very happy because for the first time, I want to say in the entire 190 episodes, Peabody and Sherman award-winning episodes, by the way, we are going to be looking at a match by the man they call. The Magnificent One. No, not Howard Baum, though I'm sure he would love for us to talk about him. We're talking about the Magnificent Don Morocco. We are going to Madison Square Garden on June 8th, 1980, as the Magnificent One faces off with Rick Martell. At ringside, George Napolitano and Bill Apter. Let's just say one of those gentlemen may be joining us for a segment a little bit later in this fine broadcast. What? And we're going to be... Yes, we're going to be doing This Day in CWF History. We are going to be doing a top 10 list. Oh, near and dear to Barry Rose's hearts, we're talking a top 10 food list. So yes. you know right away, Barry, is it's 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 half erect at this point, which may be all that Barry can get at his, his age, but I digress. That's probably <laughs> not something for me to speak about. Uh, so anyway, before we get started uh, with, this, uh, with all this stuff, Barry, there is one thing that, that I want to bring up right away. We recently, in the last couple of days, lost uh, wrestling great Don Kernodal, known as the Pride of the Carolinas, a guy that was a former uh, tag team champion with Sergeant Slaughter. I believe he held uh, titles with Bob Orton Jr., with Ivan Koloff. One of those guys, when we talk about great tag team wrestlers, the name Don Kernodal, uh, just because of the success he has. And it's amazing because, you know, when he went up to uh, to New York with Sergeant Slaughter, after the the tremendous feud with uh, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood, they like had no idea what to do with the guy, and so he was quickly buried, doubled back, came back to the Carolinas, formed a tag team. I, I want to say that's when his team with Bob Orton Jr. Uh, came about, and then later he had success with Ivan Koloff. But a guy that was just a uh, a really so I didn't realize I, I saw a card the other day, Barry, that he started right like seventy five. Yeah. So. Uh, by the time the, the whole success with Slaughter and Kernodal came in like the late 80s into, or I'm sorry, the late 82 into early 83, uh, he had been in the business for the better part of seven or eight years. Yeah, I think the knock on Kernodal was always that he didn't have this uh, this larger than life personality, but as a, as a hand in the ring, he was as good as anybody. You know, you watch his work and you go, wow, this guy is really, really good. And for whatever reason, it's like you take him out of the Carolinas and he never really did a whole lot. He was up in New York, obviously, briefly. I believe he was out in West Texas at one point, but really was a homesteader. And, uh, it, you know, I, I think I think he's the kind of guy if maybe you'd put a mask on him or did something, it's a guy that could have worked all the territories. Cause again, you watch his matches, you watch his stuff in the ring. He's great. I mean, there was, there's no flaw in that regard too. What was his, remember the angle with his brother, his brother, uh, Rocky, Rocky Kernodal, which was uh, Wally, I think was his name. But was it like Keith Larson? Yes. And they, yeah. Yes, and they had done they, like the name. Was it, was that his legit brother, by the yes, way, or was that yes. a, okay. 
Yeah, because he never had much of a career. Uh, I don't yeah, recall. Yeah, he was the guy career. that worked uh, like first, second match on the card, kind of. Except for he had that run where uh, he was. You know, I'm trying to think. I think they might have had some sort of uh, Koloff. Yeah, with like at Starcade or something like that, where where the maybe the brothers teamed up. But I know, I think. Ah, God, I'm just I'm totally guessing here. I'm, I'm going to say like around 85, his brother made an appearance, uh, and they revealed that he was Don's brother. And maybe they took on the Russians or something like so I, I have a memory of that. And I'm sure that somebody will remind me in the Facebook group, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. By the way, Barry, did you see Did you see the post? We didn't pronounce it. Instead of <laughs> saying D-Mint, we should have said I love that, too. I, uh, Lou, thank you. Uh, it was 19 Starcade 84, Keith Larson, Ole Anderson. Uh, losing to the Coloss. I knew it was in there in the mid '80s, so thank you. I appreciate that. So enough talk about that. See, man. So uh, was anyway. that was that me or you? Like it, it could have been me. I don't even have an idea. I don't know. I don't. See, man. I think it's probably me. I think I People call are it. People going to criticize us for saying the guy so got the guy got thrown on the con instead of the concrete. He got thrown on the cement. Oh well, okay. <laughs> That's he got mad said. too. That guy got mad. If you notice, he was like, "What the fuck?" It was like there was like profanity. What the fuck, calling it cement? You know? I don't know. I, I never. I've never given it any thought. <laughs> it's not. It's not something I spend a lot of time <laughs> right. for. Quite frankly. So uh, next, Barry. Uh, let me ask you, Barry. How's your boy Ozzy doing lately? Oh, this guy. He is. Uh, he is literally my soulmate. He is. He's about a foot and a half, two feet away from me. He's doing great. He's just, he's, he's a hundred percent. Yeah. And your children have accepted the fact that instead of them, that Ozzy's the most important thing in your life. <laughs> My they, kids have accepted that with Gunny. <laughs> yeah. They, they do allude to it. Uh, they make jokes about it, which is good. But of course there's the half truth in every joke, right? So, uh, look, they, they know that I have a bond with Ozzy that is, it's unlike any bond I think I've ever had with any living creature prior. It is just this, uh, I, I, I'm fortunate at the end of the day, I'm really fucking fortunate how much this dog and I love each other. Yeah. And he's a good boy. And, uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, I believe you told us, uh, that if you go on a road trip that Ozzy's going to be joining you. Absolutely. So Ozzy and I are making our way down to, uh, the state of Florida. And, uh, of course I'm bringing him with me and, uh, we're going to, we're going to do a little bit of a slower drive. I'm making the drive with just Ozzy and myself. My daughter will already be in Florida. So we'll, uh, we'll hook now, up. Now, if I could ask, what does Ozzy like to listen to on the, uh, uh on the ride down? Has he got any particular, uh, you know, uh, music that's his uh, his jam, as the young people say. I don't know if he's got the jam, but I will tell you, having made the trip from Pennsylvania to Florida multiple times and doing it with my soon-to-be ex and and my two kids and Ozzy, Ozzy was always the most well-behaved one in the car. Really? Oh, Including by, you? Oh, absolutely. By far, no attitude, super happy. Here's the crazy thing. He's so excited and loves car rides so much, he'll stand for up to eight hours before really? he finally, and then he like collapses and just passes out, but he won't sit because he's so excited. But Jeff, it's funny you bring up the, the dogs because oh, I have well, a dog okay. question for you. So I'm really, okay. I had this. It's almost like we planned that. Well, because <laughs> as you said, Peabody and Sherman award-winning podcast Truly. plan everything out. But, uh, I had this conversation with somebody today and we were in, so there's a, where I, where I live, there's a bocce ball court and it, it becomes also a meeting place for dog owners. 
and there's chairs, there's fire pits, there's bocce ball, there's light. It's just, it's a great little area and people hang out at night, but dog owners all seem to gravitate towards there. So we were there and there was a couple of other dogs with their owners and I'm friendly with all of them. And, you know, I really do. Every, every dog owner will tell you how much they love their dog and how their dog is different and special. The same as a parent, every, you know, every kid is different and smart and yada, yada. But at the same time, part of it is the way that I treat Ozzy and I've never treated Ozzy like quote unquote, a dog. I treat Ozzy like a family member. If I'm eating and if Ozzy wants some of what I'm eating, I give it to Ozzy because if my kids were in front of me and wanted some of it, I wouldn't say no. I'm not going to do it to Ozzy. And I love Ozzy. I tell Ozzy how much I love him. I kiss Ozzy on a daily basis. I hold him. Loves it. He's He fully understands that whole concept. And somebody said to me today, they said, you know, you really treat Ozzy like a person almost and less like a dog. And it was funny because of the two other dog owners there, one of them is almost identical to the way it's a female, the way she treats her dog. But the person who was telling us this treats their dog like a dog. And when I say that, it isn't that they're being mean to the dog. They just, they just treat their dog like a dog. And I, for whatever reason, you know, Ozzy wants to sleep on the couch. Well, of course he's sleeping. It's his couch. You know what I mean? This is my, my apartment. This is his apartment. Uh, now Barry, Barry, can I just ask you real quick? Do you see sure. the photo I just sent you? Let me grab my phone. I have grabbed. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Exactly. It's a dog on the couch <laughs> wearing a bathrobe and the bottle, the of, bottle champagne. of champagne is being presented to him. Anyway, on that's kind couch. of funny. So, yeah. Yeah. so please continue. I'm sorry I interrupted. Yeah, but that's that that's basically it. And uh, it for me, it's I it's never like years ago. And I I've I don't I've never told this story, but my wife and I and, and I got to figure that out. Do I say X even if we're married? Well, uh, yeah, the, the papers have yet to be filed, so refer to the the but, still honorable Mrs. Rose as okay. Mrs. Rose. So we were we went to a uh, was a pet adoption event at a local pet store and there was somebody that trains dogs and we inquired because Ozzy's got this hunting instinct in him and if it's a and I can't even say the word but if it's a squirrel, a fox, a deer, any of these he'll he he's you know he's 100 pounds, he's on his hind two legs pulling. So my wife was like it would be nice if we could somehow train him to not go after, you know, all these animals. And the woman said, well, I trained my dog, her, her dog, Jeff, I'm not kidding. was a fucking robot. This dog was div- This dog had been brainwashed out of any sort of personality in any form. And this dog was just a command driven robot. And I'm, I said to my wife, as we walked away, I said, there is, at- I won't even discuss it. There is no way I'm taking him for any sort of training with this, with this woman. Because he was a robot. So really what it came down to was, uh, I love Ozzy. He is my third child. He is the child that I never have an argument with, which is great. Ah, that's a good point. Absolutely. But I don't treat him like quote unquote, we were talking about, you know, people that uh, put their dogs in yards and they'll put a, uh, a leader or a chain link and, and get a dog. And it's like, I don't understand it unless it's a hunting dog and maybe you don't want him in the house. But if you've got a dog as a pet, it, it, these are beautiful, beautiful creatures. They have these deep, you know, 
deep feelings, deep emotional connections to you and, and to treat them as anything less than, you know, a beautiful living creature. Just, I, I can't put, I can't wrap my head around it. It's just the most bizarre thing. So 40 minutes later, Jeff, I pose the question to you. Look, who's Boy, I think it's time for an interview now, Barry. Uh... <laughs> Look who's long winded now. <laughs> 40 minutes later, how do you treat your dogs? Do you treat them as dogs or do you treat them as a family member? Well, this has been a topic of discussion here in the uh, Bowdrin household, as a matter of fact, Mr. Rose. So, uh, of course, we have the two dogs, uh, the beloved Gunny, and then we have Molly. Okay, both of them rescues. Now, my wife would have you believe that uh, I don't love Molly uh, nearly as much as I love Gunny. Quite frankly, it's a different love. Uh, Maybe you could say that I treat Molly more like a dog. That being said, uh, she has the run of our house. She uh, sleeps on the couch during the day, and at night she sleeps on the foot of our bed. So it's not like she's got a tough life, okay? Uh, I will give her the ear scratch, you know, and, and and some nuzzles under the chin and stuff like that. But quite frankly, I'm not as affectionate with, with Molly as I am with Gunny because Gunny's my boy. And so with Gunny, you know, I give him the, the nuzzles. I kiss him on the nose and on the top of the head, tell him he's a good boy, and he makes me proud every day. And it's funny because we got this little uh, little bit we do at the Bowdern house. Uh, if Gunny happens to be upstairs and uh, Mrs. Bowdern has announced that dinner is ready and we're going to sit at the table, I will go to the bottom of the stairs. Now, Gunny's upstairs, okay? And usually he sleeps on, we have an ottoman at the, uh, at the foot of our bed, and he will sleep on the ottoman. And... Uh, so uh, I'll I'll turn on the light upstairs, and I go, hey, getting ready to have dinner. We're wondering if you want to come down. You know, you're always welcomed at our table. At which point, Mrs. Bowden will go, hey, Gun, uh, come on down. We're waiting for you. And sure enough, I'll hear the little clackering of the nails. Clackering yeah. is that a word uh, on the on the wood floors? And then that face appears at the top of the stairs. I'm going, hey, buddy. Come on down. You know, mama's waiting for you. We're waiting for you at the table. And then he'll come slowly. He'll make his way downstairs. And then he pops around. He never takes a left at the bottom of the stairs. He always takes a right. Goes in the living room. He look, pokes his head up. He sees us. And then he'll come. And he, he gets under the table, uh, you know, and, and hopes he's going to get scraps. Eh, maybe 20% of the time he'll get scraps. You have to be careful. You know, I know you cook meals for Ozzy, uh, veggies, etc. cetera. Uh, we give... Uh, Gunny and Molly stuff like French fries. Uh, Molly likes the sweet potatoes. You, you know what Gunny really likes? Mrs. Bowdrin uh, clued me in on this the other day. He's a huge fan of mashed potatoes. There you go. Oh, boy. Anytime Gunny can get some mashed potatoes thrown in with the dinner, he's a happy boy. So the answer to the question here, is it time for the interview yet, is <laughs> that uh, I, I have been told uh, by my wife that uh, I care more about Gunny. I actually care about both dogs, but I am more overt, shall we say, in my affection and love for Gunny than I am for Molly. Gotcha. And so that, which is also interesting. So you, now you've been told that, but you've admitted nothing, Jeff. Well, not, not to my wife. I can't let her know. Okay. <laughs> okay. There you go. I don't blame you with that it's one. That's always a, good a contest. You know that. So, yeah, it is. Uh, so, so next, uh, Barry, I want to <laughs> mention quick shout out to a new member of our group, uh, Brian Scott. The reason I bring up Byron Brian Scott. No, that is why I bring this up. It is not the former guard for the uh, world champion LA Lakers of the mid to late eighties. Uh, what was the name? It was it showtime. Yeah, no, not that guy. This is 
Brian Scott. So here's what happens. I'm at therapy the other day, uh, and uh, this uh, gentleman uh, is talking to my wife uh, and says, oh, uh, that's my husband over there. And it's, oh, yeah, I hear you have a podcast. Ah, see, word getting around uh, the uh, the greater Atlanta area, perhaps, Barry, of, of our fine Peabody Insurer, an award-winning podcast. And and so the young man has joined our group. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I said, welcome. And, of course, he said there's nothing better, I think he said, than, than, than talking wrestling and, uh, you know, just breaking uh, breaking each other's balls. That's what guys do, you know. So uh, I want to give a special shout-out and welcome to Brian. Not Byron, Brian Scott. And uh, I'm glad to have you as a member of the group. And I hope you give me, uh, the show a listen. If not, I'm going to retract the statement if I find out you're not listening, mister. Anyway. On to the next uh, topic, Barry. I believe, oh, Barry, what time is it? What? Oh, wait a minute. Let me look. No, it... it's not that time. We'll oh, okay. For this week. But it is time for this day in championship wrestling for Florida history. Barry, May 18th. What happened on this day in history in CWF? Jeff, I'll let you redo that because it's going to be May 25th. So if you... Uh... You're right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Let's try it again. All right. Barry, do you know what time it is? Uh, let me look. No, up. it's not that time. It is time for our newest segment, the one we call This Day in Championship Wrestling from Florida History, May 25th. Barry, what happened in CWF history on May 25th? Well, so something big actually happened, uh, and it's not, you know, this isn't one of those things that you're going to find, uh, it's, you know, earth shattering. It's not a world title change in Florida or something like that, but we saw the elevation of a young, really good worker. And I think at this stage, this may have been some of the best work of his career. And he was entering into the next stratosphere and becoming a main event talent only had four years underneath his belt at this stage, but this was a second-generation wrestler in Bob Orton Jr. So Bob Orton Jr. is a guy that started in Florida, had his first match in Florida in 1972, and kind of bounced around between Florida and Georgia for the next few years and uh, worked mostly prelims, started getting a bit of a push about a year earlier in Georgia and was part of a tag team with Dick Slater that, I mean, these two guys were just unbelievable. And a lot of their careers would be intertwined for the, you know, for many years going forward, but these two were huge, but Bob Orton jr. Uh, came into the state of Florida, maybe a month or two earlier. So maybe around March or so, maybe March and April. And, uh, it was hard to, you know, we didn't know what, what to expect for the most part. And Bob was a guy couldn't do an interview. He was never a guy that really could ever do a good promo or a good interview. Not much of a talker that Excuse never changed. Me, Barry, can, can I just ask you, uh, sure. is, is it true? Cause I'd heard this. Uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, the truth or not. Did he, when he began wrestling, have like a, a stammer or a stutter yep. He and sure he was did. very cognizant of that. And, and very so that's part so. of the reason why he didn't want to do the interviews. I interrupted. Please continue. Yeah. And there, there are a couple of interviews. There was one with his dad and he talked and it's, it's noticeable that he just doesn't, you know, this is not a guy you're going to put a microphone in front of. So he really just never, never gave a lot of interviews, but he, he won the Florida title on this date in Tampa, uh, in 1976. And he won the title from Jack Briscoe. Yeah, that's exactly good company. And that's in, and when you consider that Jack Briscoe agreed 
to put him over for the title. This was a guy that was only six months removed from being the world's heavyweight champion, the true world's heavyweight champion. So this was a big deal. And years later, by, by the way, hold on again, Barry. I, I just want all those people that live in the uh, the Northeast or uh, up in the upper Midwest to realize <laughs> and, and recognize. Wait, did you hear what Barry said right there? Oh, uh, he did. He, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. The real <laughs> world champion. A little, <laughs> little shot across the bow, Barry, to the good folks that stick to wrestling and oh. uh, the good folks uh, up there uh, in the Minneapolis area. A little shot across the bow. Please continue, Mr. Rhodes. Yeah, and I've quantified that with before. <laughs> and I know that the AW, the, the WWF people basically accepted what I said, because let's be honest, there was like four or five states max. But uh, the AWA people came out in full force to shut me down and go, that's not really true. We were we had shows in North Dakota and South Dakota. And I'm like thinking, all right, you're, you're proving my case for me right now. But, <laughs> but, but please continue. That's absolutely fine. So this really was a big deal. And years later, I asked Jerry Briscoe about this. And he basically said, Jack went to Eddie Graham and said, this kid, Bob Orton Jr., you know, you've got something here. This, this is a hell of a worker. And he really was. Again, I was, you know, 13 years old. And I could tell you Bob Orton Jr. was just, this was a different level. And I, I in my opinion, in a lot of ways, this was the best work of his career. You know, certainly he wrestled up until I think even the early 90s. But what he did in Florida, I just thought was absolutely incredible. And the selfishness of somebody like Jack Briscoe to, to actually go to the office and say, I want to put the kid over for the title because you've got a real talent here. That's incredible. But listen to some of these other matches that took place. The main event that night was uh, Mike Graham challenging Terry Funk for the world title, Terry winning that, that one. But then you've got two other matches which catch my eye. Ray Stevens defeats Dick Slater. Ray Stevens being the heel, Dick the babyface in that one. I don't know if these two ever worked together ever again, uh, but they did in Florida. And then you've got Bob Roop and Bob Orton Sr. drawing with Billy Robinson and Jerry Briscoe. Jerry Briscoe and Billy Robinson were old friends. They, uh, they had spent a lot of time together in Japan and Australia, two guys who knew each other. But check out this match. The Missouri Mauler and his brother, the assassin, these, these were legitimate half-brothers, and their manager, Rock Hunter, facing, how is this for a, a bizarre threesome? Uh, let me rephrase that. How is this for a... <laughs> for me with a threesome, are you, Barry? That's another story for another time. Well, if you want to envision King Curtis, Eddie Graham, and Buddy Colton, the threesome, have at it. But it's uh, this... Now, we should also say this was uh, about a year in three months, 15 months after the plane accident. So Buddy Colt in this match wasn't really doing much. He uh, he was having a lot of issues walking. He had some sort of a brace on his shoe that would actually help him walk. So I did not see this match, but I could assume this was maybe Buddy throwing a punch or something. It wasn't like he was actively working, but that's a really interesting uh, matchup right there. But I, I do think the highlight of that is obviously Bob Orton Jr. You know, winning the Florida title. couple of matches taking place in 1965 in Tampa on this date. We had just talked about Bob Orton Sr. Well, we're going to talk about him again. Bob Orton Sr. and Bill Dromo working with Tony Marino and Harry Georgia Boy Smith. Interesting in that match, Harry Georgia Boy Smith just passing away within the last few months, and I believe he was in his mid-90s. 
But Tony Marino is still with us, and I believe just celebrating his 90th birthday or 89th birthday, he's in a, a nursing home, a assisted living facility, not doing great, but uh, still with us. And Tony was at our second fan fest and uh that that brings up a really good point i had a uh conversation with our old friend benji fido the other day and benji and i were talking about how he wanted to meet certain uh, certain wrestlers and i forget who he who he brought up but he said you know every time you say about meeting your heroes and all that you know it really is true and i'm like it really is true benji there's nothing like the regret of saying fuck I really wanted to meet this this person, whether it's a wrestler or musician, whatever, but I didn't do it because I was lazy or I didn't do it. It's one thing if you're sick. It's one thing if you, you know, you got something that you read, it's work. But if you're just, you know, and I'm lazy, Jeff, you know, if I'm just home and I'm and, and I say I didn't go see so and so because I was lazy, you know, and then that person, God forbid, passes away or something or fucking covid hits and takes two years out of your life it, that's a big mistake but tony marino doing great another great matchup on that card this is an all heel matchup we talked last week about duke kiyomoka and hiro matsuda facing the tolis brothers this week they're facing the great malenko and tarzan tyler uh and i really like that card moving down got a card here 1973 on this date in fort lauderdale main event kevin sullivan young babyface facing heel Dick Slater undercard got the Samoans facing Tony Charles and an old friend of yours, Jeff Roberto Soto. Oh yes. Now, now just for the edification of our fans, uh, the Samoans in question are not in fact, Appa and Sika, correct? You're hundred percent correct, Jeff check. So the original Samoans in professional wrestling were not off on Sika, who, when they started out, I believe were called the Islanders because of these Samoans. This was Reno Tufuli and Tio Tio, which is Tio Taylor. They split up uh, 76, maybe. And Reno went back to San Francisco and I think was working prelims in for the San Francisco territory for a couple of years. But Tio Tio actually. Uh, continued to have a long career and was known as Tio Taylor in ICW with Papa when I believe his son was Tapu. And then there were the Manchurians, uh, which worked for our old friend Ron Fuller down in Continental. There was the Manchurians, the Mongolians, and Tio was one of those guys as well. So, um, But the Samoans that would have been on that card in Fort Lauderdale, by the way, uh, the Venerable Armory or the War Memorial? So the, here's the interesting thing. We, there's been discussion of the war memorial lately because uh, first there was thought that it was going to be demolished. Turns out it's just being renovated. But CWF, For the beloved Florida Panthers, go ahead, Bear. Yeah, so the, uh, the war memorial actually didn't host many, if any, cards in the 1970s. It was all 1960s. And then, uh, obviously, CWF uh, was gone by the 90s rolling around, and 90s saw WCW and ECW performing there, having uh, cards there. But I don't think CWF had one card in the 1970s in the War Memorial that I'm so aware of. the Samoans that would have been there, were they, in fact, managed by Dandy Jack Crawford? So they were. So they, and the, I should also say the Samoans had two different managers in the state of Florida, they first had a guy named Rick Conrad. And does that name ring a bell? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I can't, I don't know what he did outside of Florida. 
He was only in the state for maybe three weeks, and then he was gone. And then they brought in Dandy Jack. And maybe five, ten years ago, I did some research on Rick Conrad, and I found out he was running a bar, owned a bar somewhere in the Midwest, and the bar burned down which is how there was actually a news story on it. But it was the same guy because they referenced that he had a pro wrestling career at one point. Interesting uh, card on this one. 1982 in Tampa, Jeff, old favorite of yours, David Von Erich working with Sweet Brown Sugar. And, and that was a, I saw them wrestle a couple of times. Sweet Brown Sugar will never get the credit I think that he deserves. Uh, Boyhood boy friends, right? Yeah, they absolutely would have been, would have, that's, you know, I didn't even think of that. They would have been boyhood friends. Absolutely. These are two guys that grew up in the same neighborhoods and actually knew each other. But, uh, they, these two were able to, and maybe that, that accounts for it. These two were able to work extremely well together. Sweep around sugar. Still that drop kick was out of this world, but it's the match underneath, uh, that caught my eye. Our old friend, Jim Garvin. Uh, if you've, uh, been with us for a while, he had an epic three-part interview with us about a year and a half ago, uh, teaming up with his manager, uh, King James Dillon, but it's who they're facing. How's this for an interesting tag team? Barry Windham and Mr. Wrestling number two, mm. um, something just, yeah, something intrigues me about that one. Moving on, we've got, so th- this is the, this is, I think my favorite two matchups on this entire, and it takes place 1979 in Ocala of all places. We're in Ocala on the, the semi-main event is a boxer versus wrestler matchup. Sonny King, who was, I guess the boxer was the manager. It was probably the top heel manager in the state at that time, working with the nature boy, buddy Rogers. So real interesting. I'm sorry. I thought the nature boy was buddy Landell. Have I aired in that, uh, Assumption. Well, you know, <laughs> how many nature boys were I'm there? just putting Budwell over. Calm down, all you people. I know you are. But it's, uh, that's usually the question. Well, how many nature boys have there been? There's been a lot of fucking nature boys in wrestling. But Buddy Rogers may have been the first or the second, depending on who you listen to. But this was during his, his comeback. He had essentially been retired for the better part of a decade and had reached out to Eddie Graham. Eddie brought him in as a booker. There were a lot of mixed feelings about the work he did as a booker, but he, uh, one of the conditions apparently was that he, he not actually wrestle. And of course, Eddie Graham had taken a sabbatical and, you know, buddy Rogers interjected himself on every single card. He could shocking, uh, shocking. shocking. Eddie Graham, uh, be found out about this a couple of months later and fired buddy Rogers at that point, basically said, this is not what we agreed. And he was gone. And most of the buddy Rogers matches at this stage, Jeff were usually six man tag matches and he would tag himself in. This would be the, all he would do in the match. He would tag himself in. He would do one, two or three drop kicks. And then he would pin in his pin in the opponent. And that was it. So, you know, if it was a 15 minute, known match, as a hot tag. There was the hot tag, but that was literally all he did. Seeing him work a singles match is very unique because on top in Ocala that night, there was a six-man match. And let me tell you who was this one. So how is this for a dream heel team? You got Don the Magnificent Morocco, uh, who is newly turned in the state of Florida, white hot. King Curtis, one of the great heels of all time. And one of my favorite heels, because you know that I love Cox, 
Killer Carl Cox facing Mike Graham, Steve Kern, and Jim Garvin. To me, that just, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. And that's an Ocala. God bless him. I, you know, Ocala, I don't know what they were drawn in those days, but that's just nuts. Uh, moving on a little bit here, we've got 1971 Tampa, Jeff. And uh, this was a match, I think, uh, actually, there's three matches that caught my eye, but this one, because you've brought this up previously, Ronnie Garvin and Rene Goulet working with Ron and Robert Fuller, but they're working with Ron and Robert Fuller in Tampa and not Fort Myers. Mm. Yes. And you've discussed that. You've asked Ron this question a couple of times as well. You know, that uh, Tuesday nights, Tampa's got Tampa's drawing 4,000 and Fort Myers is drawing 600, much smaller venue, hot as shit. There's no air conditioning. Well, actually, in either building, there was no air conditioning. But it's the next match I like, the great Malenko working with Jose Lothario in a Russian chain match. Uh, Jeff, what are the odds that Russian chain match spilled out onto the cement? Or you mean the concrete? <clears throat> so anyway, uh, let me let me just uh, say there, again, back to the original part of your uh, CWF story there, you're talking about uh, Jack Briscoe putting over Bob Orton Jr. Correct me if I'm wrong, Barry, when David Von Eric came into the Florida area, uh, and uh, won his first title. Did he not win his first title in CWF from, in fact, in fact, it's easy for me to say, uh, from, in fact, the legendary Jack Briscoe? He might. It was uh, the Southern Heavyweight Champion. I don't know if it was Jack, and it might have been. Yeah, uh, you know, when I call upon you for this sort of historical knowledge, yeah. don't make me get McKeon on the phone, for God's sakes. I, I was so. going to say, well, here's what we'll do. You got to check uh, Facebook Messenger because Lou is going to have the answer. In probably thirty seconds, uh, <laughs> that's how Lou is. So, uh, yes. but yeah, uh, Lou, the true historian of the group, we're just a couple of talking friggin' heads. That's so, all we uh, are. But yeah, but, uh, to do. And, yeah, uh, no, and, and you know, it just speaks so well to Jack's legacy, not only as the real world champion, but the fact that he was so uh, uh, in tune with the business that he spotted the guys that had the ability to, you know basically take the ball and run with it and, and become true stars. He did it with Bob Wharton Jr. And I believe he did it with David Von Erich, who was a huge deal in Florida. So, yeah. and David, okay. David could have been a different scenario as well, because David was brought in, uh, from Dory Funk Jr. And was Dory was essentially his mentor and Dory was the booker. So, you know, I, I could easily see where Dory would say, Jack, you're going to drop the strap, but everything we've ever heard about Jack Briscoe, there would, there would have been no issue with it. Jack was always going to do what the office asked and, uh, whatever was considered best for business. And that, that's the legacy that Jack Briscoe, if anyone ever says a negative word about Jack Briscoe, you need to check that individual immediately and figure that out. So Barry Lou, in fact, confirming my, uh, speculation that in fact, Jack Briscoe was the one that put over, uh, David Von Erich at December, 1981 at the venerable Bayfront, uh, auditorium. So, uh, yeah, Jack, just a stand up, stand up professional. Just a, yeah, just a great guy too. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, I, you and I both had the opportunity to meet Jack a couple of times and I got to tell you what a thrill that was, you know, what a thrill. And he was such a unassuming man. Is that the best way to describe him? He was just, you know, he was friendly. He had a gigantic smile. He loved the fact that people remembered him from his wrestling days. Cause I met him years after much like you probably did, but he, uh, he was just such a, an unassuming guy. 
You know, it was here was a guy that, you know, his legacy in professional wrestling, it, it's right up there with the greats of all time. It w- there's no doubt about it. But this was a guy that just carried himself in a completely different way. And, uh, yeah, I, I just I, I consider myself fortunate that I was able to meet him. You know, I, I've uh, said it on this uh, podcast before, but when I met Jack in uh, Las Vegas at the CAC, uh, geez, I don't even know what it was, like 2005, 2006, in that general time frame. Jack was a guy that had been one of my heroes as a kid. And when you meet your heroes later yeah. in life, sometimes you you find yourself very disappointed. Uh, they're, they're, they're not the person you hoped they would be. And sometimes you find out that they were not worthy of your hero worship. And absolutely, Jack Briscoe proved himself to be worthy of the hero worship that I gave him as a young kid. Yeah. And, you know, there, uh, and Jack, I should say too, you know, I met Jack as a fan numerous times. I took photos with him and I autographs and all that, but I never got to have a real conversation in any form. And he was even cordial back then. And I'll never forget, and this will lead into me trashing somebody else, but I'll never forget the first time I got Jack Briscoe's autograph. He was working with Tim Woods for the world title, Mr. Wrestling East Lansing, Michigan. And it was such a big deal to me that the world champion would sign, you know, again, I was what, 10 or 11 years old, that the world champion would actually sign an autograph for me. Of course, within a couple of months, the other hero in the state of Florida was this large, girthy, uh, bleach blonde guy with a big <laughs> splotch on his belly. And he, uh, yeah, uh, Dick Murdoch? Who are you yeah. talking about? <laughs> no splotch. Everything else, though, you're 100% correct. And he wasn't nearly as friendly, which is the nicest way I could ever say that he wasn't nearly as nice to fans as say somebody like Jack Briscoe was. And, uh, and that was disheartening at the time, you know, now, obviously it doesn't matter (laughs) at all, but it was a, that was a big deal at the time. And he had a, you know, I don't want to get into a long diatribe about it, but the big girthy guy with the splotch and the bleach blonde hair, uh, had a reputation uh, for not being nice to fans. And it wasn't, you know, years later I, when message boards like kayfabe memories or wrestling classics first came around, there were just, people would try to bring up justifications on that behavior. And it was, well, maybe he was having a bad night. And then people would say, don't you ever have bad nights? And it's like, yeah, I do. But I saw him have, I don't know, 50 to a hundred bad nights. You know, I saw him almost knock over a kid in a wheelchair once that asked for an autograph. And he was personally rude to me. And again, I was 10 or 11 years old. And uh, that's something that, you know, you don't forget at the same time. You know, it it wasn't a one off, which is the important thing, because I fully agree. Anybody can have a bad day and a bad night. God knows we all do. We all do. But when you see it 50 times, it takes away some of the impact of that. So, you know, the funny thing is, is I I jokingly mentioned Murdoch. And I when I went to Japan in December of 1987, had a chance to go out with a group of people that included Murdoch, uh, for, you know, to get a bite to eat and to have a couple beers and stuff like that and could not. And, you know, of course, naturally he's not, uh, with, you know, a bunch of people that, uh, you know, he has reason to, uh, be disrespectful to he's, he's out with some of the boys and he's out with a couple of, uh, friends of guys that he's with, but he could not have been more entertaining. He was just, uh, he was holding court 
And uh, he was absolutely a riot uh, to listen to him tell stories and and be engaging, uh, whether that was uh, an occasion that I lucked into and uh, other nights he was a complete asshole. I don't know, maybe. But that that night, you know, when you asked me about Dick Murdoch, I have nothing but a positive experience about him because that's what I knew and that's what I saw. And he was very nice and 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 kind to me and, and my friends. So we had a great time. Yeah, and I, 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 to that note, you know, I've never heard stories about Dick Murdoch being uh, an asshole to fans. I did witness something one night, but at the same time, Murdoch had recently turned heel in the state of Florida. So this would have been 1980 when he turned heel and was working with Barry Windham. And some fans were like screaming out and calling him a piece of shit and it, 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 so fans, and I guess fans still do, but fans in the territory days, they, they would say some harsh shit. And I know that fans, uh, it's probably worse now, you know, it's, it would have to be, but they were, they were saying stuff about his mom and Murdoch without even blinking an eye, let in, let loose with a whole bunch of expletives. And it wasn't just the standard, motherfucker or something like he called them every name underneath the book. And these guys were so mad. They said, we're going to wait for you outside. And, and it was, it was two guys, 40 years old pot bellies that, you know, they thought they were tough. And, and I don't know if they did wait outside, but could you imagine you're going to wait outside for Dick fucking Murdoch? Like, you know, wait outside for like George McCreary or somebody, or you know, yeah, you may, maybe a little bit of beer courage there. What do you think, Bear? Oh, it's something <laughs> like that. And there was here was the thing: there was no women around them. It wasn't like they were trying to impress their dates. You know what the fuck? You're going to go challenge Dick Murdoch? Are you completely out of your mind? So uh, you know, I don't know, you know what the outcome was, but yes. You know what the really sad thing is is you and I both realize we're not the only ones, but I'm saying as we're talking, you and I both know that if a young Dick Murdoch came along and wanted to get started in the wrestling business, he would have absolutely no chance. Zero chance. Well, Jeff, look at killer. Carl Cox. I just talked killer. Carl Cox at 25 looked 45. Yeah. So there exactly all of our heroes, Dusty Rhodes, Dusty Dusty Rhodes wouldn't have had a chance, chance. not a chance, right? Jack Briscoe might be the only one because that guy was always in shape. You know, but yeah, a lot of the territory guys never would have happened, especially Murdoch. My God, could you imagine? They never would have taken him. But with that being said, you know, Dick Murdoch faults, whatever his faults were, uh, the guy I think was also one of the greats of all time. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, now, Barry, it is time for us to go to a top 10 list, Barry. And it's a top 10 list that I think you will have a lot of fun with because more than Ozzy more than professional wrestling, more than a nice dish of pasta. What does Barry Rose love talking about more than anything? Blowjobs. Oh, well, okay. That was my second choice, but uh, sorry. (laughs) I was going to say, you know, (laughs) You porn or Pornhub, you but porn, no. right? Family <laughs> so, listening this week, Jeff. Exactly. We this week is- <laughs> exactly. So I was going to say food. Of course, it Barry loves talking food. So I have a top ten for my man Barry Rose. He does not know what the topic is. I'm springing it on him unannounced. Barry, I give to you courtesy of the top tens.com. We are going the top ten food countries out there. 
And because I, I don't think it's a huge shock to anyone that listens to this fine podcast uh, for more than one or two episodes, uh, Barry's palette is a little more diverse than mine. So uh, we're going to be discussing whether he agrees, his thoughts, his views, along with mine on the different countries. Uh, I'm going to mention the ones that will just miss the top 10, Barry. Uh, number 13, England, as oh. they say. And uh, so yeah, God I, bless. Uh, yeah, I'm about Ramsey, to I don't know. <laughs> Somehow he got England on number 13. I'm about to offend every, uh, and that's John, what John, I'm going to call him John Wales. What? He's, fucking, he's John Wales now. Uh, but uh, I'm going to offend. So you know, John's, I, at wor- John's at work and he just heard that comment. And now John's <laughs> going, fuck. And like all his, fucking, all his I tell these guys every week, I don't live in fucking <laughs> Wales. All are going, John, why do you curse every time, the same time every week? I, uh, I got to tell you, I, uh, I was over in the UK years ago, and uh, I, I don't enjoy the food in England. John, John uh, Wales from Flea! <laughs> unless, unless something has changed in the last you know, 20 years, and I'm assuming probably a lot's changed, but I got to tell you, England wasn't one of those places where I was like, man, this food's fucking great. No, I, I did not. Uh, I did not. Not really enjoy it too much, to be honest with you. You don't like a good blood pudding or something. Oh, have you ever had? I've blood- never had the pleasure. As I said, your palate slightly more diverse oh. than mine, sir. So coming in number twelve, Barry, Germany. I, you know, we've actually. I think we've got some listeners uh, from uh, Germany. Dima Bauer. That's is exactly it who I was. Yeah. Dima Bauer. Uh, Germany actually is fantastic. Uh, I, I so I've never been to Germany. I've eaten in plenty of German restaurants. David White, this one's for you. Schmitz in Columbus, Ohio, which is I think maybe the best German restaurant I've ever been to. It's a, basically a sausage house, a brow house. But I love German food. We have a place. So you're saying called. when you went to Columbus, Ohio, you went to a sausage fest? Oh no, sausage house. Okay. <laughs> Columbus known for that, known for well, sausage fest. And, uh, but Jeff, do you, do you like German food? I fucking love German food. I have, uh, you know, there are. Well, let me just say, I don't like it in in its in toto, uh, but there are there are different dishes that I that I like. So you know, it's not uh, a complete poo poo on it. They do this one schnitzel, and it's a uh, it's a schnitzel in a with a creamy mushroom sauce. And you get the spetzel on the side, and it's just, it's a, a whole different, I'm fucking starving right now. My God, that sounds really well, good. Well, yeah. we haven't even got to the top 10 yet. I know. So, uh, so uh, number drooling. 11, also just missing out, Barry. Are you a fan of the uh, the Korean cuisine? I am. I am And, and more importantly, Korean. South Korean, because, of course, apparently, if you read uh, the news, uh, North Korea doesn't feed their citizens. Uh, right. So uh, uh, South Korean cuisine, what do you think, Bear? I do. So, uh, so what I know from cuisine, uh, cuisine, I'm, I've turned it into one single word, <laughs> Korean cuisine, cuisine is, uh, I've had, uh, Korean barbecue, which is local. Uh, we have a place that is fantastic and it's really good. And then they do a dish and I believe it's pronounced bimimbap and it's, uh, meat, rice and vegetables. And it's just fantastic. So we have a place also that's, it's called bimimbap, which I don't know, Lou, am I pronouncing that correctly? Close, I think. I think it's bim bop. That's what I said, though, right? Lou always coming forth, a cunning linguist. Uh, um, the, the producer regrets the error. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go. Just drop in in the history of the show, right there. That Top was ten. Uh, 
Barry, right. number 10, <laughs> are you a fan of food from Spain? So I like food from Spain. I can tell you I've had it. I was in Spain 2014, 2015. I was in Spain, and I like it. It was heavy on seafood. There was a lot of uh, calamari or octopus. I forget which one it was, but uh, I think it was a lot of octopus now that I remember correctly. And uh, I thought it was very good. I don't know if I was through the roof, but I have heard their food is fantastic. I may just not have been in the right, the right restaurants. This reminds me of a very old, very bad joke that I've heard a long time ago. If you speak any Spanish, you will get this joke immediately. Barry, do you ever hear the one about the guy that went to Spain and he wanted to taste some authentic Spanish dishes? Did you ever hear this joke? I've never heard this one. Okay. So the guy decides rather than stay in the middle of the, the, heart of the big cities. He wants to go out into the countryside to really sample some of the uh, local cuisine uh, that's out, you know, outside the big city. So he goes to this small cafe, the first place he comes to. Uh, it's kind of uh, out in a very uh, a country kind of town. And he goes up to the, the waiter, comes up, he says, uh, sir, what can I get you? And he says, well, you know, I'd like to have some of the local delicacies, uh, something that, that I wouldn't be able to get in America. Uh, uh, what would you suggest? And the uh, the waiter thinks about it and he goes, "Well, sir, sir, what you would like to try, of course, is the the, the huevos de toro." And he says, "Oh, huevos de toro, uh, that, that's a local delicacy." He says, "Yes, absolutely." He says, "Oh, please, sir, bring those to me. I'd like to try them." The guy uh, brings him uh, the plate and he tries it. And, oh my God, this is fantastic! And he says, "Sir, I must compliment you. These uh, huevos de toro, you call them? They're absolutely fantastic. I, I will recommend this to anybody." And so anyway, so the guy uh, leaves. He continues on his trip. He goes around the countryside, all throughout Spain. Uh, it's time for him to head home, comes back, stops at the same restaurant, sees the waiter. Oh, my good man, how are you doing today? Oh, sir, how are you doing? He says, I want to have what I had before uh, the Huevos de Toro. I, I enjoyed it uh, on my first day of my vacation. Uh, before I leave to go back to my home country, I'd like to try it one more time. The guy brings him the plate. He sits there, Huevos de Toro in front of him. He cuts into it. He takes a bite. And it's just not the same. And he's like, well, no, this is boy, the first time I had this. This was really good. And, and it's just not as good this time. He, hey, my good man, please come over here. And then the guy says, yes, sir. Well, what can I help you with? He says, well, you know, he says, when I was here, you know, the, the first time, man, the huevos de toro were fantastic. And, and now I got to be honest with you, the, the, these huevos de toro that, that I'm having now, it, it's not as good. Well, what's the difference between the first time and the, the second time I was here? He says, huevos de toro, what, translate that for me. Uh, what does that mean? And he goes, oh, the huevos de toro, sir, that means the uh, the balls of the bull. And the guy goes, say what? He goes, well, uh, okay. Uh, why is the second time, why is it, if I'm having the uh, the huevos de toro, why is it not as good the second time? And the waiter looks at him and he goes, well, sir, the bull, he does not always lose. Oh, I like that. that. Your joke of the day from the Booker. I hope you appreciate it. That wasn't bad. So no, uh, I actually enjoyed it. So Jeff, on that note, have you ever had Rocky Mountain oysters? I have not. Yeah, <laughs> Chevy Chase did. Yeah, I'm willing though. I absolutely. I, I I look at it this way. Look, if we're eating all these other parts of animals, the cows and chickens and whatever, you know, really are the balls any different? I I don't know. I don't see oh, it. You, you of I, course caught my reference about Chevy Chase had them. Oh, I, I caught that. Yeah, yeah. From the movie Funny Farm, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So next, Barry, yeah, number He nine. set a record, didn't he? Set a record. I think he did, as a matter yeah. of fact. That's right. 
So number nine, Barry, I personally know this is a favorite of yours, not necessarily mine, but you are a man that loves, I believe it's pronounced the good tzatziki sauce from Greece. Yes. Barry, please pontificate on your love for all things Greek cuisine. Please let me, I have just pulled out the soapbox and I am standing. (laughs) Thank you. That soapbox. My arms are in the air as I just am reaching for the heavens. I love Greek Mediterranean cuisine. And Jeff, you and I, you had that Zeke. You and I went to the hungry Greek in Tampa together. I was not as enamored as you were. Uh, but it, it, it was good. But I, you know, I don't raise my arms to the heaven whenever I have Greek food. <laughs> I, uh, it's, uh, so the area that I moved into, uh, which I guess is a, a going on my fourth month, every restaurant known to man is within like two miles. It's just a great area for restaurants. And there's a Greek restaurant that I've been going to, and, uh, they just do a tremendous job. And I, I've been getting the souvlaki. I get the euros, but I get the souvlaki, but there's that tzatziki sauce is through the roof. I love really, really good Greek cuisine. Uh, and there's not a ton of, at least, you know, in my area, there's not a ton of really good Greek restaurants. There's some, some gyro, some gyro restaurants, but not a lot of Greek restaurants, but man, I love that food. Barry, let me ask you when we go back down to uh, Lutz, Florida, uh, and to the Tampa area, will you be going to the hungry Greek? I will. So it's, uh, it has become, a, a stop. Actually, the one that you and I were at is the same one that I will go to, uh, that I've been going to for years now. So I will go and, uh, and I'm there. Should I, I guess I'm there in like five weeks, six weeks. I'm back down in that area. So, uh, that's already on my radar to at least make one or two stops. And as my daughter likes to point out the best Pepsi in the world. So really, well, that's said, a draw right there, right? Pepsi connoisseur. Yeah. Yeah. So number eight, Barry, I can tell you, uh, this is a food I have tried. I don't have a vast amount of experience with it, but I have, I have tried it. Uh, very good Thailand. Yeah. Barry, the old Thai food. Fuck yeah. So Thai food, Jeff. And we, I told this story when, uh, your, when your daughter was getting married a couple of years back, it's about what, two and a half years at this point, I went to the local Thai restaurant, which was literally from the hotel five, 10 minutes max. And I got uh, green curry. So there's two different types of curries. There's the green curry and the red curry. And the red curry is less spicy. I always get the green curry. It was so spicy that I was sitting at the table sweating. And the waitress came over to ask me if I needed anything. And when I opened up to speak, I just started coughing. I couldn't even talk. And she just looked at me like, what's wrong with this guy? Uh, I love Thai food, extremely spicy. If you like spice, if you like coconut milk, uh, they do a lot with that or lemongrass. But Thai food to me is spectacular. I like pad Thai, which is arguably the most possible popular dish. But give me a, uh, a spicy shrimp green curry. I'm in heaven. One of my favorites. So when you began coughing, did the waitress sit there and start laughing and go, what's the matter, American boy? I, I, you uh, could I'm, see I'm it in her eyes. The, the Ric Flair interview when, he, uh, when they turned on him. So uh, let's see, Barry. Next, coming up at number seven. Oh, Barry, who doesn't love a good meal from the USA, Barry? That's right, the United States coming at number seven. A little controversial here, Bear. Yeah, so that I'll tell you what I... I'll give you two thoughts about that. Years ago, when you used to go to Epcot, and you've been to Epcot before, right? I have. 
Yeah, so you go to Epcot, and certainly things may have changed. This is years ago, but you would walk around the different lands, and you'd go through Japan, and they were doing a Japanese barbecue or doing sushi, and you'd go to Mexico, and there's these beautiful Mexican dishes and margaritas, and every Morocco doing all this Moroccan food, which was fantastic. And then you got. I like to the way the- you tied that reference into our match of the week, Barry, with Morocco. It was magnificent. Well, absolutely. absolutely. And then you get. You get, you see what we did. Then we, you get to the American pavilion and it was hamburgers and hot dogs. And to me, it was such a bad representation on, on the food of America, because, you know, let's be honest, we've got amazing food, but the difference between when I first noticed that 25, 30 years ago, whatever versus today, the American cuisine is as good as anybody's it's, you can go to a lot of countries and certainly we're going to be more biased and prejudiced. And it's certainly food that we're used to, but at the same time, there's been such an innovation with American cuisine over the last two decades that seeing it at number seven is very surprising to me. Yeah. I mean, who does not love some good barbecue done properly? Southern barbecue uh, to me is a top notch. Hey, you going into New York, Vermont? I'm sorry, that's that's not barbecue. That's uh, I don't know something else you're doing there. Barry, number six. Who doesn't love a good Chinese restaurant, Barry? Well, I I love a good Chinese restaurant, but I'm going to take the Andrew Zimmern route right here, and I got to say, there's just a lot of bad bad Chinese food that's out there, and uh, I had Chinese food that's going to get you banned from the Travel Network. It again, yeah. So that I had Chinese. There's usually a spot that I go to which is okay. I'm not going to say it's the best, but it's the best I've had locally. But there's another place that I went to which has a pretty good reputation. Maybe a month ago. And we spent like $50 and it was only two of us, but we got so much food. It was almost inedible. I ate it, but I got to tell you, I was really disappointed. The steak, the pieces of beef were fatty and chewy. The, just everything about the food was just, you know, was, I didn't like the flavor profiles. I didn't like the textures. I didn't like anything about it. Really good Chinese, Jeff. I'm a hundred percent on board. I, I could live on that if if you find a place, but there's so much bad out there. Yeah, no question. So I'll tell you a funny story that just came into my mind. When I used to go visit my parents uh, when they lived in Orlando, uh, I remember that there was a Chinese place that was not too far from where they lived in the suburb of Castleberry. And when you would go to this restaurant, my dad, of course, my dad just ha- has to be this way, I guess. We would order, you know, the usual traditional, I guess you could call it, uh, American Chinese, or is it New York Chinese? Yeah, the stuff you like, your your uh, mugu gai pan, uh, you know, uh, pepper steak, that kind of thing. But then, of course, uh, if it's a family-owned business, there's that uh, back room that you see sometimes when the waiters come out where the family's in there eating, and they're eating something completely different. It's, a, yeah. I guess, real Chinese food. And it's what the Chinese people eat because they don't eat, you know, mugu gai pan and, and pepper steak and, and stuff like that. So my dad made a show one night of going, well, can I have what they're eating back there? And the waiter gets all bum-fuzzled and flustered and says, <laughs> well, that's not on the menu. And my dad goes, well, I don't care. I, I want to try some of that. And it was like the manager had to come over and tell my dad he couldn't get that because it wasn't on the menu. So have you ever really had real Chinese food, Barry? I did. So I've had it a couple of times. I had it in New York City. 
this was so I went when I lived in New York and I was moving from New York to Orlando. They threw us a goodbye party and it was at a real Chinese restaurant. And the people that had taken us that had organized this were Chinese. So they knew what they were doing. But about eh, five or six years ago, I signed a restaurant up in Philadelphia and it was a Chinese restaurant. And I knew the owner because I had signed up two of his other restaurants. He invited me to stick around for lunch and said, yeah, I'm ordering things that we normally you're not going to find on the menu. So one of the one of those items was spicy chicken gizzards. Have you ever had a gizzard? Uh, I've never had the pleasure. So it is uh, I believe it's the it's something to do with the intestine, but it's super chewy. It's like it's I can't imagine it's beyond chewy. But what they had done is they had braised it. And then they had stir fried it in this spicy sauce. So while it was chewy, it was flavorful. And I got to tell you, I I said, what is it? And he goes, it's gizzards. And he goes, most Americans won't eat this. And I said, fuck it. You know, bring it on. I'll I'll try it. And I got to tell you, it was fantastic. I loved it. I loved the texture and I loved the flavor of it. I remember on uh, the old uh, Guy Fieri uh, diners, drive-ins and dives, there is a place, I want to say in Michigan, and it's like something like gizzard city or something like that where literally that's uh, you know they don't sell fried chicken it's just like chicken gizzards that's it that's that was the staple of the restaurant i don't know if it's still out there or not any of our listeners in the michigan area uh perhaps could uh, let us know when this uh, show drops on uh on tuesday number five barry barry we're in the top five all right barry are you a fan of indian cuisine oh so jeff i think i've mentioned this to you over the last so two things that I have heavily gotten into over the last four months would be reggae music and Indian cuisine. So I've got a friend, you know, I, where I'm living, I made a friend and oh, that's nice. It's, you know, it's important at this stage of my life to have a friend, but they have person, a dog since we talked about Ozzy. Of course they have a dog, oh. uh, the dog, uh, a very cute dog that Ozzy all enjoys this dog. The dog's uh, name? The dog is Annabelle. Annabelle. Okay. Oh. Annabelle. Ozzy so, has a girlfriend. That's not nice. Ozzy. Ozzy has a girlfriend, and uh, but one of the things is Indian food. Eating a lot of Indian food in this past week, Sunday, Sunday, I had chicken vindaloo and lamb rogan josh. Uh, no, I've heard of the vindaloo. I haven't heard of the uh, the other thing though. So vindaloo spicy in yeah. rogan. The truth is, I can't tell you one from the next because uh, they all have similar flavor profiles. Sometimes the heat's different, but you get some of the non-bread or some of the pori bread uh, and get raita. And Jeff, raita is the Indian version of tzatziki. It's essentially a yogurt sauce, and it really pairs well with the Indian food because of the spiciness. The yogurt sauce kind of kind of cools it down. So, so yeah, I've been eating a lot of Indian food, and I I think I went a couple of years where I really wasn't, and now it's uh, once a week or twice a week I'm eating it and absolutely just loving it. It's my son's favorite cuisine, by the way. Zach, there, I, I, I know in uh, in the greater uh, coming Georgia area, there's a lot of really supposedly very good, tasty Indian foods. So, uh, uh, Barry, have you we, ever had Indian food? Well, that's what I was going to say. Hey, can we tell the listener, can we break kayfabe, Barry, about a, dare I say, an upcoming trip that you're having and where you may be stopping by? Absolutely. So I am, and I, I think I mentioned a little bit, but I am driving down to Florida either June, somewhere the third week of June. I'm not exactly sure the day that I'm leaving. And my goal 
because it's essentially Ozzy and myself making this trip is I'm not going to rush like I normally do. And uh, I possibly may be showing up in incoming Georgia, Jeff. And if that is the case, then it's Indian food or Thai food or both, uh, which I think you should do. I, I want to fa fa or fa. Absolutely. So I may be stopping in Fayetteville, uh, North Carolina, cause I can do Fayetteville in about eight or nine hours. So I'm thinking I may do that. And then I'm going to be in Daytona before I head over to Orlando to pick up Zoe and then head over to Tampa. And in Daytona, I'm actually going to be hanging out with our old buddy, Jimmy Jett, the referee, old Jim Berkeley. Are so, you going to uh, be swinging by the Boot Hill Saloon? I don't think so. That's a, that's a nice biker bar for any of you not oh, to move to Daytona. Daytona? Yeah. Yes. So uh, number four, Barry. Now here's one I'm down with, Barry. I love me some good Japanese cuisine, love going to the Japanese steakhouses, having the food prepared right in front of us. You can't go wrong with that, Bear. Yeah, what about sushi, Jeff? What are you, uh, no. Uh, no. So do you eat seafood, though? Uh, I do. And so, i be honest with you. I, I'm not, it's not like one of my staples. I will eat right. it from, from time to time. So. so would you eat sushi, and this is almost the oxymoron, but if it was, if it had cooked seafood in it? Because there are certain rolls where the seafood is cooked. And I bring this up. The best sushi I've ever had is at a place right down the street from me called Wujong. And they do this volcano roll. And it's a soft shell crab in a roll that they cut up. And then they top it with diced soft shell crab in this spicy volcano sauce. It's the best thing I've had, best sushi I've ever had. It's not even sushi at that stage. But. Uh, you know, you think about it. Hey, hey, what kind of sauce you want with that, sir? Give me the volcano. Volcano. Yeah. Yeah. Would volcano. you try that though? Would you try that or no? Uh, it depends if we uh, had a bet and I lost. All so, right. but do you do you like going to a nice uh, Japanese steakhouse, having the food prepared right there in front of you, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's not uh, Benihana because Benihana right. is like fast food terrible. and it's uh, terrible. Yeah, it's but terrible. we've we have a few Japanese steakhouses around where we live, and usually, like you know, you have a some sort of holiday, like Mother's Day or one of those kind of holidays, or someone's birthday. We like to go out to the Japanese steakhouse uh, and enjoy and the fine cuisine there. Barry number three. Oh, see, I'm married to Mrs. Bowdrin, so by osmosis, uh, being married to Mrs. Bowdrin, I have to like Mexican food, and I do. But Mexico number three, Bear. Absolutely. As I, a good friend of mine yesterday had uh, something called Chipotle nachos. So, uh, <laughs> Not from the restaurant Chipotle, though. Correct. It <laughs> was it, yeah. Senor Fiestas here. <laughs> and uh, they had it. I, I got to tell you, I had it for lunch and then I brought the rest of it home for dinner. They gave me so much that in two meals, I couldn't finish the friggin' thing. It was absolutely huge and it was really, really good, Bear. I love Mexican food and and there there's obviously there's so many different types. You know, we're used to the American version of Mexican food, but I was in Mexico uh I guess is what four years, right about the time I think I don't know if we were already doing the podcast or not, but hold on one second. I was in Mexico and I absolutely loved uh the food. It and it wasn't like the typical you know, like the burrito I get when I go to El Limon locally or something like that. It it was these really beautifully crafted, creative dishes. And I was just blown away. Everything about that trip. And that trip was a it was a trip that I won from from work from open table. And it was all 
basically centered around where we're going to eat lunch and dinner. And they paid for everything. And they really took us to some of the best places, not the fanciest places, but the places with the best food. If Mexican food is done right, I think it's as good as any cuisine out there. Yeah. Now, did you eat at restaurants? Were you uh, indulging in the street food, if you will? Absolutely. So, yeah, I did a uh, – and I, I probably shared the videos with this, too. The restaurant we were at, and I, I'll never remember the name. We were sitting, and there was – we had basically like half of the restaurant. There was so many of us. But the tables were all facing outside. And there was a, a band outside playing music, and it was a guy on a guitar, a guy on bongos, and then a guy on a violin, and they were doing Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm like four sheets to the wind at this point, you know, I'm, I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm out of it. And I just fucking hear this version of personal Jesus. And I'm like, what is this? And I like go out and I'm like videotaping these guys. And uh, yeah, the food is fantastic. And I, I love the American version of Mexican too. Don't get me wrong. I love tacos, soft shell tacos and burritos and all that. But real Mexican cuisine, oh, through the roof. Number two, Barry, are you a fan of French cuisine? Yes, but let me definitely quantify it. It's overrated. So I thought it was at number two, a little bit high, maybe it's, it's, you know, there's this, uh, French cuisine will always be considered the whole cuisine. You know, it is the, uh, which by the way, I think is the first time we've ever used the phrase hot cuisine here on this fine podcast. Absolutely. It is, uh, you know, the, the best restaurants in the world are considered, uh, are French restaurants. The restaurants that are considered the best in the world are French restaurants, and and the food can be very good. I've had French food, I don't know, I'll say 10 times, 15 times. I had it in France, but I don't always know if that counts because I'm sure half the places I were in were all tourist traps. But there is a uh, a local French restaurant not far from where I live right now that I went to years ago, and uh, it the food is great. I just... I don't think, I mean, it's heavy on butter and my God, I could eat butter. I could just pick up a stick of butter and eat it. I fucking love it so much, but I I just always found French food is very good. I just, it doesn't knock me out the same way that, you know, really good Mexican would or, or, you know, really good Japanese or even really good where I think you're going to go the next one, which has to be number one. It has to be. No spoilers just yet, mister. Sure. I will say uh, French cuisine, not a huge fan of the French cuisine. Now your your French desserts, French pastries. Yes. Ugh, you can't go wrong there, Barry. Uh, you know, we, we uh, when we were talking about the top chain restaurants probably 50 episodes ago, uh, and I mentioned uh, La Madeleine, and I have to say the croissants or croissants oh, that they have oh. at Le Madeleine is – they're absolutely amazing. If you have one uh, in reasonable driving distance from where you live, it is worth the drive just to get uh, like six croissants to take home. You put some butter on those bad boys, and whoo, it is some good, good eating. Barry, before we get to number one, as I was going down and you know we, we got the top 15, maybe the top even 20 listed, the one that I conspicuously noted was not there, Barry. There's nary a mention of fine Cuban cuisine, Barry. I know you're a fan of Cuban. How did they forget Cuban? Yeah, I, I'm going to guess it's, yeah, I don't know. They, they, 
I could almost make a justification on why they forgot it because there's not a lot, you know, a million Cuban rest. I mean, certainly South Florida's got it. New York's got, but you know, you head out to like Iowa. I don't know, but that, that are you be, saying Des Moines does not have a, it, it, that shouldn't be justification for removing a cuisine off of a list. Cuban food, Jeff, you know, it Cuban food is fucking amazing. If done yes. right, it's amazing. So now number one, Barry is go ahead and tell the good folks. It has to be. I mean, there's there is one cuisine that Jeff has not mentioned, which arguably is the most popular cuisine. Yes, uh, out there. and, and you be- got it, Barry. It is Wales. Wales. Second John Lee reference of the day. Oh, of course, we're talking Italy here. Uh, Barry, how can you go wrong at, at what they call the uh, the red checkered uh, tablecloth Italian place? You can't. And I'll tell you, if somebody tells you, I had somebody once tell me that they don't, they didn't like Italian food. What, what do you do? What the fuck is that? You don't like Italian food. Who doesn't like Italian food? Everybody likes Italian food. It's just in our DNA to like it. But uh, yeah, it's a, you know, again, a lot of this list is going to be the personal preference. You know, I, I feel like I could probably eat Indian food seven nights a week currently, but at the same time, yeah, Italian is probably the most popular food worldwide that I could think of. Right. You could take a nice pizza and take it off the list, and Italian would still be number one. Uh, you think about your nice uh, uh, lasagna, your nice, as my neighbor used to say, manicot. They couldn't manicot. say man- they couldn't say manicotti. You know, they had to manicot. Like you're fucking Irish. What are you doing calling it manicot? So yeah, no Italian, definitely number one. Barry, you can't go wrong with a nice Italian meal. Now, where's your, do you have a go-to Italian spot? Well, you know, unfortunately, I, I really cannot say that we definitely do. We're, there's a couple places that we actually, I will say, there is a place near where my wife works with the uh, seemingly innocuous name of Vinny's of New York, and it's the best pizza up here. Uh, they have a, a, a dish called the spicy meatballs, which they, they put a little, a uh, little something in the meatballs to make them a little more, uh, you know, a little that's more a creative bite. title. How did they come up with that? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they might've heard a commercial or something like that, right. but that's really right. good. But uh, that's like a bit of a, a haul about 45 minutes away from us. So locally there's a couple of places that are like acceptable, but not nearly as good as the one that's actually in the, uh, Italian, um, metropolitan uh, Duluth, Georgia area. <laughs> Who expects a good Italian place in Duluth, Georgia? That's, you know, so, I was, it was funny. I was watching a show on TV last night and they were saying that Duluth, Georgia is the hotspot for Italian restaurants in the country. Well, Go of course. Figure. That's incredible. That's Andrew yeah. Zimmerman goes for all his Italian. Goes, for all, goes to Duluth, flies into Atlanta and then rents the car and makes the drive. Absolutely. Exactly. Strawberry, it's time for us to go to our match of the week. As I said at the opening of the show, I've been wanting to do a Don Morocco match for I don't know how long. Decided not to go with Jimmy Snuka, not Bob Backlund. Lo and behold, I'm doing a deep dive on the old YouTube and come across today's match from June 8th, 1980 against Rick Martell from the Garden and lo and behold, standing there at ringside, shooting the matches is our old friend, George Napa. Uh, no, not George. I'm talking Bill after Bill. Welcome once again, my friend. You know something, brother? When you talk about Don Morocco, I thought you were going to have the super fly on. Well, that would be quite the guest spot for the super fly to join us. <laughs> Ratings. That really, really, really. It's great to be, it is great to be back on the show. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Don Morocco, I was there 
every once a month, Monday nights at Madison Square Garden, shooting the matches with George Napolitano, Frank Amato, this punk kid named Paul Heyman at times. Yeah, and it was it was quite the uh, quite the time with all of us there. And uh, I I did. You sent me the YouTube link because I had mentioned to you. I said I shot so many matches at the Garden with Morocco. I wasn't sure if I remembered it. And then when I called it up, yes, I absolutely did remember it. And it, it was just it was great because the Grand Wizard, when he came into the ring, was always he knew how to heat the crowd up, no matter who he was with. But he always played to us photographers. You could see in the video of him pointing to us and screaming at us and everything. And Don Morocco had just, if I remember correctly, had just come in from uh, uh, Florida. Yes, this, this was actually his debut in the Garden. Yeah, yes. And he had just come in from Florida, where I had seen him a few months before that, Florida being one of my favorite territories from back in the day. And uh, it was quite a thrill to see him at... Uh, at Madison Square Garden against Rick Martel. So you said that you really don't recall specific details of the match. So here's what I wanted to do, Bill. Uh, tell us, did you have guys, you know, and, and I know, uh, I shouldn't say I know, I'm guessing based on the amount of coverage that the magazines, uh, the newsstand magazines gave him, that Bruno, of course, must have been a favorite. Did you have anybody that was a favorite of yours to shoot that maybe – you know, it wouldn't be somebody that would go, oh, yeah, well, of course, that guy. Oh, I there were a bunch of guys that were on the lower end of the cars that I loved to shoot. Davey O'Hannon, I loved to take pictures of him because he was a mixture. If Terry Funk and Dick Slater got married and had a kid, it would have been Davey O'Hannon. That's quite a combo. Well, if you look at his style, you see that he has quite a mixture uh, of the two of them. Um, I used to love to uh, photograph Baron Michel Cicluna and always catch him hiding the uh, the pencil uh, in his trunks. Uh, but there were, there were so many guys that were on that level. Johnny Rods. I mean, Johnny Rods is amazing the way he uh, he worked in the ring against any, any kind of opponent you put Johnny Rods against was a, a good match. Every one of them. Uh, so yeah, I like you. Sometimes the undercard matches were as good as the matches on top, even if the fans didn't pay full attention. I think we saw that in the state of Florida as well. A lot of the prelim matches were equally as good as a lot of times the main event. And the truth be told, sometimes they were even better. But so taking into account the guys you like to shoot. What was the process like at that stage, being able to shoot in Madison Square Garden? Because certainly, as we know now, to get anywhere near a ring, uh, you know, you'd have to know probably the president of the United States. But back in those days, to see three and four photographers around the ring, I'm assuming it was much easier. But did you have to go through the garden or did you go through Vince McMahon Sr. personally? What was that like? No, Bill? They, they, I, I went through the president. The president of. <laughs> <laughs> no, by that time that you watched that match, I was fairly well established. It, it was a routine, and it's in my book, Is Wrestling Fixed? I didn't know it was broken. Uh, it's in my book, the whole uh, that talks about the, the process turned out to be uh, once a month on Monday nights was the garden, and it always rained. It always rained. 
And the routine was me and some of the other photographers or friends would go to a little Italian called Nathan 9th and 42nd Street called Angelo's. We would have dinner and then we'd go across the street to the Holland Hotel where the WWWF had an office on the second or third floor where Vince Senior, Gorilla Monsoon, Arnold Scolin, and a whole bunch of the other guys would sit in there smoking cigars and playing cards. And I would go up and knock on the door, and Arnie Scolin would always come to the door and give me a photographer pass. Uh, at that point, uh, the next step was walking down to the garden and going through the employee's entrance and going through the dressing room area, and then... Uh, um, schmoozing with all the guys, doing my interviews or whatever. It was always very crowded back there. A lot of state athletic commissioners who all wanted to be in the magazine. They all stood there smiling like they were going to be on the cover of the magazine, all the state athletic commissioners. They were very nice to me. And then we would go uh, around the ring. So, no, you had to uh, – back then it was it was different because there was only a handful of us. And we were, you know, we were all pretty well known that we shot for the magazines. We were pretty established at that point. And it was very hard for some other people to break in and use somebody. For example, Paul Heyman started doing a newsletter and he became friends with uh, the Grand Wizard, Fred Blasty and Lou Albano. And that was his entree into the business. He used to send me pictures as well. And we published some of the pictures in the magazines I worked for. But as years went on, it became increasingly more difficult for people to get credentials to shoot around the ring. Because a lot of times people were complaining that we were either in the way, the fans were complaining, or the commission just didn't want a lot more people around the ring. Um, and then eventually, 20 years later or so, none of us in the ring because then started his own wrestling magazine and all the uh, wrestling magazine photographers. It was nothing personal. It was a business move. And, uh, so yeah, so that did that answer the question? It, it it yes, for the most part, it answered the question. <laughs> but it was a great insight to to you know the I guess what you had to go through back in those days, Jeff. You well, had a back question. in those days, back in those days, if you're just somebody who wanted to uh, go and shoot for your high school newspaper or something, you they probably wouldn't have let you do that. You right. would have had to find a way to get to Capital Wrestling, which was almost impossible. Um, I was given the rug by Stanley Weston, the publisher that I worked for. And even though they didn't get along with him because of some things that went on between he and Vince Sr. and some of the other people, which again is documented in my book, they were willing to give me a chance because they saw that I worked for the magazines. And there was no internet back then. So what better way for the uh, the people to get publicity? I also, and... Uh, I did a. I bought time on a radio station in New York, WHBI 105.9 FM, and uh, I started doing my own, the very first pro wrestling radio show in New York. And a lot of the guys wanted to get on that. I would go down to the local shows, like at Sunnyside Garden or the Westchester County Center, and interview the guys and put them on the radio next week. So you know, little by little, they started to get to know me to the point where after a while I just need to walk into the garden and have a seat. So Bill, let me ask you, you know, uh, it, I'm sure there's a big difference in, uh, watching a match as a fan and watching it as, as someone who's a photographer and, you know, covering the match, uh, as part of the press, 
But in that role as part of the press, can you, as you're shooting a match, appreciate a match that's happening that the fans are really into and they're, you know, it, it's a, it's just a great match as you're shooting a match. Can you sit there and Absolutely. think to yourself, wow, is it great? As Absolutely. opposed to when you get a stinkeroo going, eh, this match is not really going that no, well. No, no, absolutely, 100%. I get it. All the matches I shot between Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair, the, the, the feeling of shooting a championship match like that or, or, one, or a match of Bruno against almost any opponent at Madison Square Garden, yeah, I got into it as both the... After a while, it's almost like you're not shooting pictures. It's almost like you're involved in the match. If that's if you can understand that, uh, it's like you're a piece of the match. Like you're running with them and you're being you're slamming with them. It's just it's a very unusual feeling, but it's almost like you're part of that match. Yeah, that's very exciting. So, Bill, a question that, uh, and I, I don't know if this is an easy one or a hard one for you, but I I always go back to my favorite year for professional. Wait wrestling. a minute, wait, wait before you go on. When you just said what you're going to say, I'm going to tell you what the captain used to say. There's no hard questions. I answer them all. Now get on with your question. What is it? I set you up for that one, definitely. <laughs> my my favorite year for professional wrestling was 1975. And uh, we saw such great talent in the state of Florida. It just really made an impact. And I think that was the year responsible for making me a fan for life. Is there a year, a month, or even an instance that you can directly point back at and said, this is what has made me uh, a fan for, for the rest of my life. When I was a kid growing up in Queens and watching wrestling on channel five in New York. And I saw, I was enthralled by, Buddy Rogers, Cowboy Bob Ellis, Mark Lewin and Don Curtis, Antonino Rocca, the amazing Zuma, Skull Murphy, Bruce Bernard, uh, the fabulous kangaroos and Wild Red Berry. That wet my appetite, and I never turned back on it. So that was the start of it. That was the absolute start of what gave me the, made me, the, the very first thing I saw ever on wrestling, and there was a show aired in New York called Bedlam from Boston, and there was this British announcer named Lord Athol Layton, and he made some comments about some guy named Dick the Bruiser, and my brother was watching this on the little black and white TV, and I came into the room, and I saw Dick the Bruiser beat the living tar out of this broadcaster, and then they said, next week, they're going to have a match, and I was like, like, that was that same era there so that you know that whole thing is what whet my appetite to do that and then the characters like Antonio Rocca he had his legs insured for a million dollars by Lloyd's, Lloyd's of London I told my parents I want to have my legs uh, insured by Lloyd's of London I told my parents I want to strut around my school like Nature Boy Buddy Rogers I became all these people they were not like wrestling is today where the characters are outlandish. These are people that I was able to associate that like they were real life athletes. So yeah, when that's you, what did it. So when you were shooting at Madison Square Garden and, you know, uh, our particular match of the week, Morocco versus Rick Martell. And Rick Martell, of course, was a few years away from getting his run as the AWA champion. But 
were there guys, whether you had gotten some sort of inside tip or not, but were there guys that you could spot as they're younger appearing at the garden and you're going to yourself, Oh, this guy's going to be a good, uh, he's going to be a big deal. Oh, there were a lot of them. I, I can't think of them off the, off the top of my head, but if you, you know, people like uh, when Eddie Gilbert first came in and Kurt Hank first came in, sure. People like that. Absolutely. Well, was Rick Martell one of them? Martell was one of them. That's why we did so many stories on young Rick Martell because he, he, first of all, he had the look to sell magazines. He had that look. The girls were crazy about him. You know, a lot of what went into the magazines, people would buy off the stands because they, they liked what they, what the girls loved what the guys looked like or the guys liked, you know, the guy had a great body and, you know, I want to have a body like him, this type of thing. Oh, Rick Martell, absolutely. We did a zillion stories on him pre him becoming a major star, even when he was wrestling down in the uh, Georgia and Carolina areas. Sure. Gotcha. So one of the things I think I'm most interested in, Bill, I saw you perform, I think the first time I ever saw you perform, and and you're quite the entertainer, I saw you at absolutely Wrestle Reunion in Tampa, which would have been 2005. Jeff, you were there as well. I was. Uh, And then I saw you at Barnes & Noble I guess shortly after your book was released and you, you do an incredible show. So, uh, you know, I'm thrilled because bill is going to be hosting our after party, which we have renamed in his honor. Now the after party we've got, well, this thank you. Absolutely. Well, and well deserve it. We've got this big event coming up November the 6th in Tampa. It's actually in Lutz, uh, which is a suburb of Tampa. And it's at a fantastic. Well, I thought it was Lutz. Ah, that's a matter of some I dispute. Did- <laughs> and now, from what I understand, if I remember right, Dusty Rhodes in that town. That's correct. Dusty had a ranch in Lutz for several years. But, Lutz uh, to you, Lutz to me. Yeah, exactly, which is the truth. But it's uh, the area has changed a little bit in the last 40 years. It's no longer ranch and horse country. It is a booming metropolis. And we're, we're having this event. It is November the 6th. It is an all-day event, starts at 11 o'clock in the morning, goes till probably 9 o'clock at night. And Jeff, do you remember the name of the hotel? The Residence Inn uh, at North Point Plaza, Parkway, <laughs> something like that. We're getting better. It's the, Bill, this well, is the people longest go name. to your Facebook page and find where that is. But I want to say something that, and I feel like my old page, well, I want to say something, Vince, is that I am so bold over thrilled to finally come down there. I haven't been down to Florida for anything wrestling oriented in 15, 20 years. And I had a lot of photography people that worked for the magazines that came from there. I had a lot of fans from there and still do. A lot of them still correspond with me. And the nostalgic days of my trip to Florida, my parents lived in West Palm, but my nostalgic days of uh, traveling uh, Monday night at West Palm, Tuesday night to uh, at the Eddie Graham, Wednesday night to uh, to Miami, Thursday night to Jacksonville, Friday, Saturday, Sunday to the other towns. I used to love, I traveled one time in Florida in a car with these three unknowns, Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr., and Harley Race. And I think Bubba Douglas was driving. I was going to say, I hope Harley wasn't driving because I heard he uh, no. would occasionally exceed the speed limit. Well, he did. He didn't. He always had a, a, a case of beer in the uh, on ice in the trunk. 
Well, so Bill, what what can fans expect? You're hosting the after the after party, uh, and I should say too, it's going to be a great event. Jody Hamilton kicks off the day at eleven o'clock in the morning. Cup of coffee with an assassin. Uh, a very small group of fans will wait be able minute, to have. A, wait a minute, wait oh. a minute. I'm a New Yorker. It's a coffee. Coffee. We're going to do coffee and see. And I coffee we, talk. And we live in Philly, where everybody calls everything now water, water. So, but we are excited. Jody is going to be uh, doing the cup of coffee with an assassin for about an hour, hour and a half. Then we have got a full day of photos and autograph signings. The Rock and Roll Express are going to be there. Mad Maxine will be there. Bill Apter will be there. I Uh, can't wait to see Mad Maxine, by the way, because I did the very first introducing story on her in the magazine. Oh, wow. She yeah. is, uh, and she she was at our first event. She has never done a fan fest prior, and not done one since. So all she knows Great. is the events that we do. She is so engaging, and what I loved about her, Jeff, you correct me if I'm wrong. She was having as much fun as the fans were. Uh, big crazy. smiles and just exactly. But so the rock and roll express will be doing our catered dinner. It's a two hour My catered buddies. dinner. They answer questions. They'll tell stories on the road. And then to close out the night before the police come, the after party <laughs> takes place. Bill, I've seen the show, but tell the fans, what can they expect with the after party? Well, I'm going to be, um, uh, telling stories, of course, but I'm going to be showing special videos that none of the fans down there ever saw. I have a video of probably 35 to 50 uh, wrestlers all giving me the finger. Uh, you all heard of uh, Cal Championship Office Wrestling, when the wrestlers used to come up to the office and wrestle me for the yep. uh, gold belt. I will have a highlight reel of that. I'll have highlights of the after chat. I'll be bringing down some of the memorabilia from Actors Alley, like No Masters, his first mask that he wore at Madison Square Garden, the mask Rey Mysterio wore that he lost to, I believe, Dean Malenko. When he got it back, he gave it to me. So, and there'll be a lot of interactive. I might put somebody in my six-second figure four leg lock. You never know. Bill, let me let me ask you real quick, and this is how far back I go back uh, with your magazines. Will you perhaps? be willing to allow one of the fans to give you the Stan the Man Stasiak heart punch like you did in the magazine? You know, I was enjoying the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff. (laughs) I went and ruined it. Now I have to go into my Grand Wizard bag if Bill Apter thinks that Stan the Man Stasiak cannot put him out with the heart punch. He is Dead wrong. It's been your pleasure to hear my round, dulcet tones. So, in hearing this, it sounds like Bill, who was recently featured on A and E, uh, the WWE's Lost Treasures. It sounds like you're going to be bringing some Lost Treasures with you. I will. Which I absolutely will. But I, and I, I do... will have a contest for a prize. By the way, uh, I will be bringing down a Taz singlet that Taz gave me when he left ECW. And I generally get two volunteers up and see who can get into a cast singlet fastest, and the winner wins a special prize. Jeff, are you going to attempt this? <laughs> I, I, I don't think anyone wants to. No, see no, me. Staff. No. <laughs> no staff. No staff. 
Got to be one of the fans. All right. Can, but Close just for fun, can we see Jeff try to get into Taz's singlet? Uh, I don't there, think anyone wants the it. the contest. Maybe what we can do, Barry, how about this? How about we get uh, well-known phototogs Howard Baum and Pete Letterberg to see who gets in the singlet quicker? <laughs> uh, maybe. 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 Uh, well, we will get two volunteers. Definitely. <laughs> but there's a lot of interaction. Uh, right. Barry, you on my show over at the Barnes and Noble, and uh, as long as there's a, a video projector and I can show my videos, I think the fans will have an extra good time. I think they will. And Bill, I I am going to officially lay the gauntlet. I'm going to throw the challenge down at our last fan fest. Uh, one of our great supporters, Bubba Harris, made a championship belt for me. It's the first belt and only belt I've ever had in my life, except you know the ones that I hold up my pants, but. It's the CWF Legends Fan Fest belt. Can we have your belt versus my belt? Belt versus belt taking place in Lutz or Lutz, Florida? Will this happen? You know what? Since we live in the not from each other, do you have your belt at your home? I do. So I suggest that we find commissioner, and I think I know someone who would do this, and I think you and I need to do a contract signing. I love it. Jeff, what do you think? Contract signing myself and Bill Apter? As long and as I, I will put it up. I will put it up on one wrestling video on my video oh, channel. Absolutely. As and, long as there is some sort of notary republic, some official capacity there to witness the contracts. You know, like back in the day, Sandy Scott was always there to witness the contract. <laughs> I have somebody in mind. Yeah. Wonderful. See, when I'm defending the Cal Championship Office Wrestling Belt, I'm, it's not Bill after anymore. It's Wonderful Willie. And Wonderful Willie will make sure that everything is set perfectly the contract sign. Well, Bill, I'll have you know that I am fully vaccinated and uh, I am ready to come over. Oh, you mean against COVID? Time. I thought you were referring to something else. No, uh, I still have all that stuff, Jeff. Okay, it's just the yeah. COVID. I'm fully he vaccinated. Does, yeah. So. You know, when I saw him for dinner a few weeks ago, by accident, he was scratching still a lot. Well, you know, the, the painful groinal itch. It's a, <laughs> a terrible, terrible that. thing. Yeah, so. I understand uh, that. Bill, we want to say thank you so much for joining us. We definitely appreciate you uh, coming, giving some memories to the good folks of shooting ringside at the garden and other well, places. You're welcome. And let's do this. Let's do this again several times before I make the uh, trip down there to uh, to Florida because uh, I can't wait to see all these the great bands down in Florida. I, I miss that territory so very much. And next time, maybe you guys can hurl some insults at one another to really build up the heat for the match. I don't know. Barry, maybe we can just hurl some yeah, insults I'm at, him. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm writing down all the good insults that I have right now. So, <laughs> so when I see you, I can just hurl insults. You, you don't you. have to worry. You don't have to worry. I went to the Don Rickles Charm School. Uh, Don is a personal favorite of, of this podcast, by the way. So then so. You know. Oh, yeah, we know. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Before you, my battery passes away here, I want to wish you a uh, goodbye from the uh, today sunshine area of the Philadelphia suburbs. Thanks, Bill. Love you, brother. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. So anyway, Barry, just to wrap up now, you had a chance to watch the match very quickly just to, to wrap up this segment. What, what did you think of the match, Morocco and Martel? 
Yeah, so it's uh, it's a it's a good match. Let's. This is not a a match that's going to change anything. It's uh, but it was a good debut. But I I think the real takeaway from this match was the aura that Don Morocco had coming into the Garden. This was you could you know look. We had just seen him in the state of Florida, and Don Morocco was. He was bigger than the state of Florida as a heel. Like we knew as we were watching him that, wow, this guy's going to go, he's going to go somewhere. Like this isn't, this guy's not going to go work, you know, like Kansas city or some shit, you know, like this guy, he's a big deal. And he had this aura and the way he plays to the crowd, the way the crowd even reacts to him. So I think the match is good. Again, I don't, you know, I don't think there was anything here that is spectacular, but if you wanted to get a guy over as a superstar and it wasn't, you know, to me, I don't, I don't always feel the squash is the way to get somebody over. I feel this was really a good attempt at getting somebody over. And obviously it was because Morocco's run in the, uh, in the Northeast lasted for, Years and years. Yeah. And, you know, you put him in with a perfect opponent like Rick Martell, who I'm not breaking any new ground here saying that Rick Martell was a was a terrific performer and a terrific wrestler. And, you you know, you give him to Don Morocco, who's, as you said, coming off a terrific heel run in Florida. And, you know, we're not the only ones that have ever said this. There have been other uh, podcasts uh, out there that have said Don Morocco would have been an incredible world champion for Whatever amount of time. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I will post a link to this match uh, between Don Morocco, the magnificent one, uh, and Rick Martell and our Facebook group, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. So, uh, Barry, uh, you about ready for the old go home, my friend? I don't, this was a this was a lot of fun. I had a great time. I, I'm good for another couple hours if that's. Uh, yeah, if that's we're talking favorite. food. We're talking wrestling matches. Yeah. You know, yeah, we got we a little bit fun. of everything. So, uh, anyway, on behalf of, uh, our producer, the sweet man, Lucifer himself, uh, well, at least that's what we call him jokingly, uh, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman and my co-host Barry Rose. I am your host, Jeff Bowdrin. They call me the booker. Take it home, Lou.